Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. After the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathen, Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. That is some riveting stuff right there, isn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but that's a lot of names, and I'm pretty sure four or five of them are from Star Trek. I... I love that Britt read that mostly because I feel like you all believe I'm smarter than I am and I didn't want to remove all doubt by reading some of those names today, you know? Um, I, I think when I look at the Christmas story, I'm used, to, I'm used to mangers and I'm used to angels and I'm used to donkeys and I'm used to stars and shepherds and kings and Herods and Mary and Zacharias. I'm used to all the biblical stuff. When I think of the story of Christmas, I have been to church for a long time, and I've heard it told a lot of different ways, but I might be the anomaly, but I haven't heard a whole lot of people start the Christmas story and teach for the first part of Matthew 1. We're a culture that likes when things happen, when action happens, we don't have a lot of patience, and we look at a list of names, some we've heard of, some we never have and don't even know if they actually exist, and we skip down to verse 18 and say, that's Mary, I got that one, let's start with that one as we tuck the kids into bed, you know? Because it makes sense that way. But here's my problem with that is the Bible says pretty clearly that all scripture in Timothy is God-breathed. That means he inspired it all to do something in you. And that something is to make you look more like Jesus. So every word in every part of the Bible, whether we understand it, whether we know it, whether we know the person it's talking about or not is one job. It's to make us look like Jesus and tell us who God is. But 
but we skip the first part of Matthew a lot. We skip the genealogies because they're difficult and I don't understand them and it sounds like a sci-fi novel, you know? But this, this story, this series that we're in, the whole point of it, the tagline, the medium, the message, what we're doing is looking at some of the stories we've been told or maybe haven't been told and we're saying, if God is God, he can choose the way in which he comes to this world. He gets to pick. He can do what he wants. Why this way? Why this way? If God is God and he wrote this book through the people that wrote it for him, if that happened, why bore me with 17 verses of things I don't understand or really want to read about? Just pick up in verse 18. And, and what I think it shows me is that there's something there that maybe I've missed. And so what I want to do today is talk about Jesus's family, because I think what it shows us is more of who God is. But before we get into it, we're going to pray like we do every week. We have two goals on Sunday morning here at the CBC. We want to know God because we can't ever get to the end of our knowledge of a God who's bigger than us. And then we want to experience God because he gave us the emotions, no matter how often we try and wall those off as men. And so what we want to do is come together and we want to know who God is and we want to experience his goodness because it gives us a fuller picture of how we're created to worship him. And what that means in the here and now, what that means with today is we're going to go through some names and I firmly believe that the Holy Spirit's going to work on and in you and it's not just my job but yours as well. And so we're going to take a minute and we're going to pray and I'm going to ask you pray to yourself that the Spirit does something in your life. That as we look at some names in the scripture, it shows us about a God who wrote the scripture to tell us about him. So let's pray. God, I'm so thankful for our time together to gather and to look at your family history today. I pray that as we do it, that you show us who you are, that the Spirit shapes us into more of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. I'd ask that you take a minute or two or 10 or 15 seconds and just pray silently to yourself that the Holy Spirit does a work today and that, that God prepares you to receive his truth. I'd also pray that you, um, and ask that you pray for me today that God uses my words to be edifying and uplifting and all the things Second Timothy says that we might know God more today through the teaching of his word. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're in the Christmas season and that means one thing that I really, really dislike. I, I am not a fan of the family Christmas card. I'm sorry. If you sent me one, I love it. And it's on my fridge. But here's why I don't like it. I'm a competitive person. I am just by nature. And I love hearing about my friends and their families, but I turn the card over after it's a beautiful picture of their family, like on a sunny day with the wind just right. And I read about how awesome their family is. And because I'm a sinful, selfish, competitive human being, I read my daughter went to, and in my head I'm saying, we got to be better than that, you know? It feels like our Christmas card culture just kind of perpetuates this cycle of competition of keeping up with the Joneses, you know? And it feels like I'm thrown into it and I try to fight it, but it's just really difficult to fight that. We say the good parts of our family and we don't write stories about the bad parts of our family. And I think that's fine, by the way. I think it's beautiful to celebrate. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but kind of true because I'm sure you've been there too. The, the hard part I have Sometimes I feel like it's not a full picture of the messiness of life. I was talking to my wife. We've never done a family Christmas card before. And um, she was saying she might want to do one this year. And I had this idea that she didn't like. I had this idea. And I said, what if, you know those Christmas cards or those cards that are just a collage of like 100 pictures, the little small ones? So I said, what if this year the first thing we do when we wake up in the morning is take a picture of us, just you and me like our heads. 
And what if the whole Christmas card is just 365 pictures of what we look at, what we look like when we wake up in the morning, you know? Like pre-baby and then post-baby. And you can track our tiredness by the, the wells under our eyes, you know? And she said no. <laughs> but I love that idea because it brings a little realness to the conversation of what my family is like. And why I bring all that up is because when we look at Jesus, when we look at his genealogy, when we look at the first captivating sentence of Matthew 1, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, and you think to yourself, we're going to talk about genealogies today, I could have been at brunch, but now it's too late, right? When you think about that, I think the first thing we have to acknowledge is that if I'm telling the story of my family, I'm telling the parts I want you to hear, you know? I think we, we, we do it implicitly. I think, I think first century Jews did it as well. They led the headline in their genealogies was the part they wanted you to hear about. Matthew 1 actually isn't a complete genealogy. It's a selective genealogy. What that means in that first 17 verses, 16 that carry the names with it, it's not everybody. It's not all of Jesus's relatives, and that's okay. The point wasn't to give every single name. The point was to say, look, there is a clear connection between this guy and Mary. There's a clear connection in our text to the family that he belongs to that you can't question, but it's a selective genealogy, which that means is that he picked who he wanted in there because not every king is listed. Not every cousin is listed. Not every father is listed. Not every patriarch is listed. So my question as I approach this text today is, why do you pick these people? Why did he include these people on his Christmas card, if you want to put it that way, you know? And so it starts off by saying, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And before we get into anything else, what Matthew does is he identifies whose family this is. It's Jesus' family. And sometimes we brush over those words because they're used all the time. But when it says Jesus Christ in the scriptures, it does two things. It's a name and it's a title at the same time, Right? It's a name, it's a title. So let's look at Jesus real quick. Jesus is the Greek word for the Hebrew word, Yeshua, or Joshua. And Joshua literally means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh brings salvation. God brings salvation. Names were important, and so when they heard Joshua, they thought, good Jewish families, this guy means God brings salvation. And if you're a good Jew, the first two people you thought about, one is that guy that has a book written about him in the Old Testament, and what Joshua did was he took his people after Moses died. He took his people and he marched into the promised land that nobody in their family had ever seen but been promised to for 500-ish years. They walked over the Jordan for the first time and stepped into God's promise for all of them that they never thought was possible, right? Joshua literally brought the good things of God. He brought the salvation of God to a people that had only known enslavement up to that point. And then the next example we have of Joshua in the Old Testament, the big one is, actually Brett read about it, it's that after the departure to Babylon, in the middle of the messiness of the Jewish history, they get captured by um, a couple other countries. And they wonder if they're ever going to come back, and they finally do. And in about 500 or so, they, they, they come back and there's nothing left there. And they don't have a temple or a place to worship. And that's where they thought God was. And so how can I worship God if he doesn't have a house, you know? And so they look around and they say, I don't know if this is ever going to happen for us again. And at that time, the high priest there was named Joshua. Yahweh brings salvation. And this is what Zechariah prophesies about him, about what's going to happen to this guy. And he's the, he's the prophet at the time. In, in chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, it says... God says to Zechariah, 
take then some silver and gold to make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua the high priest, the son of Jehezadak. Then say to him, the Lord of heaven's armies says, you listen when it says the Lord of heaven's armies. It says, quote, look, here's the man whose name is Branch, who will sprout up from his place and build the temple of the Lord. Indeed, he will build the temple of the Lord and he will be clothed in splendor, sitting as a king on his throne. (laughs) So what he's saying is this thing that you wanted will come again through this man, Joshua. God is working to bring about your restoration, your salvation. So when it says Jesus, the first thing it's saying is it's not just his name, it's his title as a restorer of God's salvation for his people. There's a lot of hope caught up in that, you know? There's a lot of hope. I've shared this before. My grandmother, when I go to the farm in Iowa, had all the grandkids. There's 15 or 16 of us. She would have your name, and she would have what your name meant next to it. And it said, as a kid, I used to go and remember it, because I was always kind of, I am the runt of my family's litter, you know? Um, My twin brother is 6'3", blonde hair, blue eyes. My little brother is 6'3", blonde hair, blue eyes. My my dad is 6'4", black hair and something colored eyes. Um, I'm a guy. Uh, And... (laughs) <laughs> and I think it's weird to stay under my dad's eyes. Um, and next to my name growing up, it said Charlie. It had my picture there, runt of the right now or litter. And then it said next to it, strong and manly. And I thought, it's going to happen. It has to. That's my name. Yeah, it didn't. Anyway, so my point is, if you were a Jew and you heard Jesus, you thought God's going to bring salvation through this guy. That's his name, you know? And then it goes on farther. It says not just Jesus, but Jesus Christ. And again, Christ is a Greek word and it has a Hebrew word tied to it as well that is literally anointed one or Messiah. And we see it throughout the Old Testament. We see it with priests and we see it with kings. And it says, hey, when God anoints priests, that same word, when he selects these people, when he picks a chosen set of priests, it says in 1 Samuel 16, about David becoming the king. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. The same word there, Christ or anointed one or Messiah. (laughs) The picture it's painting when it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's painting a picture of, this is the genealogy of a selected one of God who came to bring about salvation. So before we get into anything else, we have to understand the kind of family that Matthew is about to describe. And it's one that sets a pretty high bar, you know? And so, if my family sets a pretty high bar, if that's my name, if this is who we are and identity is wrapped in family values in the first century, I am going to list the people that embody my pedigree, you know? It happens that way. I've been doing reading this week on the royal family because I think it's a really good kind of analogy between, hey, this, this family is pretty lofty. And when you join this family, we tell the story of the winners in our family because this is the bar we set as the royal family. So Meghan Markle was an American actress and she married one of the royals and a bunch of people for some unknown reason got up at some unknown hour to watch this thing on TV, right? And, and it was funny because I was reading how she had to change to be a part of the family. I did not know some of these things. If you want to be a part of the royal family, there are certain things that you can and can't do. For example, you can no longer take selfies as a member of the royal family. Didn't know that, right? So Meghan Markle can no longer take selfies. I'm sure it's because they think selfies aren't dignified, and I've never seen one that is. So, you know, I'm like, okay, I get that. No selfies. She can't sign autographs anymore. She actually, there's no, she can never wear casual clothing outside of her house. 
If you even look like the little kids, they cannot wear casual clothing, right? No jeggings for Meghan Markle, you know? I mean, I don't even know what people wear to the airport if it's not casual anymore. You can't wear casual clothing. You can't um, take selfies. She can't eat shellfish or any rare meat anymore. I would have said no to the proposal at that point, but that's just my deal breaker, you know? It gets a little weirder. One of my favorites was, and this is a true story, I read it in several different publications, they're not allowed to play Monopoly. <laughs> well, I know. And I asked why. You read about why. One of the princes, I think it was Andrew, banned it from the royal family because, and I quote, he said, it gets too vicious. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm joining that family, you know? But then one of the ones that really shocked me was, if you're a royal, if you're not a royal, excuse me, you're not allowed to touch royalty. Not allowed to touch them. So rewind to a few years ago when Obama was president and Michelle Obama went to meet the queen, she hugged her. And there were articles written on how she should never have done that. This is the president of the United States' wife and she couldn't hug the queen. And then a couple months ago, uh, one of the royals was um, at a basketball game and took a picture with LeBron James and he put his arm around her and it looks really awkward because he's not supposed to touch her and his name is King James, you know? That's a dad joke right there, buddy. <laughs> so I, I just, this idea, and that kind of embodies it well, that we are such a family of such high esteem that you will do these things to be a part of our family. You will not play Monopoly. You will not eat rare meat. You will dress a certain way, and regular people can't even touch us. Let's talk about what our family's all about on the Christmas cards. <laughs> so what I want to do is as we go through some of the lists of people, I'm not going to go... Linearly, I'm going to kind of pick and pop a little bit and take groups of people that we find because some are really fascinating and some are a little weird and some are a little confusing and some are exactly what you'd expect when you look at Jesus' family. Do they keep up with his pedigree? If this is Jesus Christ, and if you keep reading in verse 1, it says, um, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It says, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so, I mean, out the gate, it sets a pretty high bar too. Son of David, son of Abraham, it's kind of saying, hey, these are our show horses in the Israelite tribe. These are the best it's ever been. So it does exactly what we would do. Here's my family. It's been a great 2018. Let me tell you the good things we did. It says, this is Jesus Christ, this high bar sent by God. Here's his family, David and Abraham. In case you don't know the history of the Old Testament, David was the best that ever was. He represented for them he represented the pinnacle of their people's history and what they were aspiring to get back to one day. It's that picture of you from high school with your shirt off that you keep in your sock drawer saying, I'm going to get back there one day, I promise, right? When you look back and hope that you'll be there again. It's that. And it's that that, that gave them a hope for their future. So the word David there, when he says he's a son of David, it wasn't just past glory, but hopefully it's future greatness. That's why we read this verse in Isaiah 9, 6. It's very adept to the Christmas season. For unto us a child has been born, a son given. He shoulders responsibility and is called amazing advisor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. His dominion will be vast and he will bring immeasurable prosperity Here's why. He will rule on David's throne over David's kingdom, establishing it and strengthening it by promoting justice and fairness from this time forward forevermore. David 
was the best they ever were and was going to be the best they were ever going to be going forward. He was their past hope and their future glory all in one. So when it says Jesus Christ with such lofty praise in his name, of course, David would follow. And just as a side note that I find interesting, when we talk about selective genealogy, if you look at our list, it's broken into three groups of 14. Brit read it, 14, 14, and 14. And why it does that really was to tie Jesus' genealogy all to the Davidic throne. So in the Hebrew, in the written Hebrew, every character, consonant, has a, a number associated with it. And so what you'd do is you'd look at the consonants in a name, and then you'd add up what their name was numerically. And so with David, you get, you know, in transliterated, you get D, V, D, and so you have two of the same characters, and then one different one, and literally it was four and four and six in the middle, so four and six and four is 14. And so when it says 14 and 14 and 14, if you're a first century Jew, you read that and thought David. You read that and thought, this is why he's writing the selective genealogy to tie Jesus into our past, our past glory and our future hope. He's saying, this guy's going to bring that again. Every Jew would have caught that. So he's saying, he is from the line of, he is the son of David. But he goes on from there. The superstars don't stop. He says, also Abraham. So David was the key figure in the Jewish mindset. But Abraham was, if there was a second, a close second, or like one in A and one B. Abraham in Genesis 12, we've read this before. It's a pretty pivotal verse in the Old Testament story. He says, I will make you, Abraham, into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And everybody on earth will be blessed through you. It was the first time they gathered as a people. It was the promise for their people to be a people in the first place. So when he says, you're the son of David and you're the son of Abraham, he's saying Jesus Christ comes from the best stock in the Jewish pond. He's saying David really was their high point in hope and Abraham was what made them a people in the first place. He's tying Jesus to the working of God as the one who brings Yahweh's salvation. One commentator said it like this. He said, um, by this brief subscription, Matthew discloses a theme of the book. Jesus is the one who will or shall consummate God's program. It's this idea that he comes from the best stock in the pond and it's what you and I would do if we're describing our family. I'm going to give you the best example of me. I'm going to give you my kid's GPA if they were a straight-A student. I'm going to tell you this is what I'm proud of of my family first and foremost. So at this point, I'm tracking with the genealogy of Jesus. Like, yeah, I get it. It's like I would do with my Christmas card at home when I finally write one of those things. But it doesn't stop there, and this is what I find fascinating. Because what you get in this genealogy is a mixture of peoples, not just the best and brightest of what you get in this genealogy isn't just, hey, here are the things we're proud of as a people group. Here are the things that I want you to identify with me, which most Jews would do. They'd give you the best and the brightest and then move forward. So after you get past Abraham and Moses, what you see is a couple different kinds of groups. So you have your overachievers with those guys. And then throughout the genealogy, you get some of these people that you don't recognize, that I, I don't recognize. Britt read them in, in chapter, in verse 13. He talks about some names after the deportation to Babylon. Uh, Jeconiah became the father of, and, and that guy that I'm not going to pronounce because it's not going to sound as good as Brit, became the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, who we can read about, became the father of Abiyad. Abiyad became the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azar. Here's the deal. I'm willing to bet all the money in my pocket for all the money in your pocket. You've never heard of Azor before in any other parts of the scripture because he's not there. Hey, actually, most of those guys aren't there. Most of those commentaries are going to say, we don't know who these people are. They're 
completely outliers. These aren't the best and these aren't the brightest. They don't bring shame to my family, but they're just non-starters in the first place. We have these groupings of people who are in Jesus' family genealogy that he put there. And I gotta ask, why these guys? There were better names that you and I would recognize and he didn't put them in there. You know? Why put the people that you're gonna look at and say, who are they? It's the middle child syndrome 101, you know? It's like I'm trying to live into my brother's shadow in high school, but I just can't because I'm not quite good enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not fast enough. I'm not bright enough. Why can't I just be? And he says, these people are directly related to me, Jesus Christ. There's this list of people that, like I said, aren't necessarily the superstars in the family, but they are for sure overlooked in their family. Then he goes on to another group in the middle of it. um, You see like a grouping of people They definitely aren't superstars and they're not overlooked in the scriptures or in all the lineages and all the literature ever written. Um, And it really raises an eyebrow. You get these groupings in the middle of these four women. Uh, My version actually has them literally in parentheticals. It's Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah. I use a net Bible when I teach. NIV actually says by the wife of Uriah as well. Some actually say the name Bathsheba, but most don't when it comes to the translation. So in the middle of Okay, you have these superstars that, of course, I'm including in my family line because this is what I'm about. And then these people that I, I've never heard of. I don't know why they're in there, but sure, why not? And then it takes a turn for why these people? So we have a couple problems when we try and reconcile why God would put, why anybody would put women in this list. First and foremost, um, women weren't respected and they didn't bring value in the first century world. We've talked about it at length before, but... Let's just say that they weren't counted as the same way as men were. There's a book of the law called the Talmud that Jewish people use. And the Talmud was a compilation of a bunch of laws. So it was all the Old Testament laws. And then as teachers of the law, as rabbis would walk, they'd say, um, hey, here's the law, but here's several applications of it. Don't do these things either. And that was the oral law, or something called the Mishnah. And so what this was, the Talmud, was a combination of all the laws and all the, all the oral interpretations of the laws, and it literally is defined as the day-to-day guidebook of Jewish life in every single facet of life. And, and the Talmud has a line in it that says, and I quote, a mother's family is not to be called a family. Here's the problem, is that you would not include women in any kind of genealogy because they didn't add any value. You only counted through the man, and that wasn't changed for a long, long time. And so when he's listing his genealogy, when Matthew's listing the genealogy of Jesus as scripture that's inspired by God, he lists these four women and anybody then and there would have said, why are these women in there in the first place? My version literally has them in parentheticals like they shouldn't matter to begin with. That's just one problem. There's another uh, three at least out of the four of these women. They weren't necessarily what I would call upright citizens. They had a sketchy past. (laughs) So when you look at the list, I mean, Tamar and Rahab and the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, all have pretty serious sexual sin. Tamar did some really awful things. You can read about it in Genesis 38, but it's not a bedtime story for the kids. Uh, Rahab was a prostitute in Joshua 2, and the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, her fault or not, she slept with somebody when she was married, and that's what they know her for, was the adultery that ended up breaking up their country. So the... These were women, but then I'm not even including like the best women on the list. It's like if I'm going to try and include people in my family that aren't already members of my family, I'm picking Hugh Jackman because who doesn't love Hugh Jackman, you know? I'm not picking like the guy that got turned down for all the auditions that he went to. I'm not picking 
the worst version of ourselves. But that's what seemingly happens here. And there's these four women that shouldn't be there in the first place, that necessarily aren't the most upright of all the people that I wouldn't pick if I could pick. And then the biggest problem to all these women, the biggest problem, all of these women aren't Jewish. This is a Jewish family lineage. And in the middle of it, we have four women who are Gentiles. We have Tamar, who was not Jewish. We have Rahab, who was a Canaanite. We have Ruth, who was a Moabite. We have Bathsheba, who was a Hittite that married a Jew that then became Jewish only by marriage. None of these people were Jews in the first place, and they were women, and they had sexual sin, which was a terrible kind of sin in that day and age. And you've got to ask the question, why does God include them in his family line? Why does he include them in the, in the list of people he wants me to know that he was related to? Because this is a Christmas card. This is the point that I leave out, you know? I just don't talk about this six months in my family's history. I don't bring it up anymore. I think what it does, and what we're getting at, is how God talks about his family doesn't just tell us who God is, but what he came to do in the first place. One commentator says, um, Already here in the genealogy, Jesus is presented as the one who will ignore human labels of legitimacy and illegitimacy to offer his gospel salvation to all, including the most despised and outcast as a society. What God is doing is setting up this idea that maybe his intentions and his purposes and his grace and his love exceed beyond the limits that we put on it, exceed beyond the people groups that we think are worthy of it. I worked in Chicago for a nonprofit for a little while, and I led a team um, of students that would go and serve in the soup kitchen. And I remember the first time I did, and it was the first time I've ever served in a soup kitchen. I dropped off food, but I'd never literally served on the line in a soup kitchen. And it's all these homeless men. And the women were first for an hour, and then the men came in right after that. And the first time I did it was with these men, and, and they would come down this line, and we'd have, you know, all these things, and I had like, well, I had like the applesauce and the peaches or something, you know, and I'm just putting them on this plate with segmented portions to it. And these guys are coming through, and I'm thinking, man, this is great. I'm helping these poor souls that don't have. I'm feeling all the feels inside, like warm and tingly, and God is good, right? And they're coming down the line, and I dish a few out, and then this one guy says, and I won't forget this, he says, hey, man, I don't want that. I said, you don't, you don't want what? Food that I'm giving you? You're homeless. What do you mean you don't want free food, you know? I didn't say that out loud. This is in my head, yeah? And, and then another guy comes down the line and he says, hey man, I don't want this to touch this. And I said, what, what do you mean you don't want this to touch? Aren't you grateful for what this is? People gave this so you could eat and you're gonna make demands? You know, do you not understand your position versus what you need? And afterwards, you know, I did what I could and afterwards I was a little bitter about it. And I remember talking to the volunteer coordinators there I said, man, I have a hard time with the fact that we're trying to help these people out and they're making demands on what we give them. We're giving them these things. And he says, yeah, man, but all they want is your dignity. And and the fact that they can choose what they want to eat and how they want to eat it, that is their dignity. And and what they want is for you not to see them as a homeless man that'll take anything you want to give them. But they want to be able to pick and choose what they want. Like you get to pick and choose. It's about their dignity. It's about me seeing them as not an outcast that I'm helping, but on the same playing field as me in the first place. That's what, when Jesus says these women are in my genealogy, I wonder if he's asking us to see people not as, as a project, but to see people as equal on the playing field of needing God, whether they're in or out of church or in or out of my friend group or in or out of what I deem as moral or not. The same commentator goes on and says, Matthew inherently honors the five women in, of his genealogy simply by his inclusion of them. So it's not enough to merely minister to the oppressed. 
We must find ways of exalting them and affirming their immense value in God's eyes. <laughs> when I read through the genealogies, I can't help but ask why God's include these, why God is including the people he is, and I think it's to teach us about who he is. So then you move on from the women. So you have like the superstars, and you have this group of people we don't really know but didn't do anything bad. Then you have these people that shouldn't be there because they're not even Jewish and they're women. And then you have the people that don't want to be there in the first place. That, that, that fundamentally don't like God or what God stands for. That said, literally, I don't want to be a part of your family anymore. And we have three kings that it mentioned specifically, Ahaz, Manasseh, and Ammon. And here's the deal. They were good kings they could have picked and put in the family lineage here. They were good kings. So as the story goes, David was the pinnacle of, and then you know, he had Solomon, and Solomon liked a lot of women, and that led to the downfall as power split. And the best way to describe it is their country got a divorce. And you had 12 tribes total, 10 ended up called Israel, and two ended up called Judah. And in Israel, for the next few hundred years, there were 19 kings, and they were all really, really bad men. Didn't like God. That's what we define bad, is they didn't like God, and they did things against God's ways. In the southern tribe of Judah, you had 20 kings, and 12 of them were really bad, but eight were really good. Some of the good ones are listed. But it doesn't always just list the good ones, it lists the bad ones too. It's like Jesus isn't shying away from the messiness of his own family. And so, for example, Ahaz, his story is found in 2 Kings 16. And this is what it says about Ahaz. Ahaz, by the way, is the son of Uzziah, who was a really good king. He had an example to follow, but we didn't stop there. We said, here's a good king, and oh yeah, his son's in my lineage as well. And that's what it says about him in 2 Kings 16. Ahaz was 20 when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem for 16 years. Unlike David, his father, way up the generational line, he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel. And here's how bad he was. He even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out. He killed his kid. That is not a guy I'm putting in my Christmas card saying he's a member of my family. There's got to be a point in which I say you're no longer one of us because you clearly don't want to be anymore. You've turned your back on me. Let's call it good. But it's seemingly, Jesus says, these guys turn their back on my ways and my family and my rhythms and our people, and I'm still going to say they're a part of my family. The next one on the list is Manasseh. It actually gets worse with Manasseh. Manasseh is the kid of probably the best king in Judah, Hezekiah. He was an amazing reformer. Manasseh came, and you find his story in 2 Kings 21. It says this about Manasseh. He shed so much innocent blood. Innocent blood. His own people. He, sent, he spent so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. Some translations say it, it ran down the streets. He killed his own people because he could. It's a special kind of evil. And then it rounds the list out in the genealogy of the kings of the bad ones. And this is the father of Josiah, a good king. It said that um, the last one, Amon there, that he led the inhabitants to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. My question that I keep asking when I read through these is why are these men in there and why didn't God just exclude them from his genealogy and not tell anybody about it? Because I wouldn't. At what point do you turn your back on family? Why include them? And I think the reason why he does is I think what God's trying to do is show that even if there's evil people that aren't for his purposes, God's still going to do what he wants to do. There's one commentator that says, good or evil, they were part of the Messiah's line. For through grace does not run, for though grace doesn't run in the blood, God's providence cannot be deceived or outmaneuvered. 
I love that idea. Because he's telling us who he is in his lineage. And part of who he is is a God that gets stuff done whether you're for him or against him. He says, I, I have a plan and it's going to happen. And it looks like Jesus Christ. They got the top of this org chart that I'm drawing out for you right now. So we talk often about the fact that I do a lot of weddings. And um, one of my favorite parts of weddings, this is going to sound terrible, stick with me. One of my favorite parts of weddings is when things go wrong. I just love it. I love it because it makes my life a little more interesting. Um, and there was one wedding I did uh, a couple years ago, and everybody's walking down the aisle. It was a long walk, and we have bridesmaids, and we have groomsmen, and everybody's there, and it's outside. And as the ceremony's supposed to start, this bridesmaid makes a beeline up to this little cottage where the bride was, and nobody knew what was going on, right? And people are starting to look around and ask questions, like, what's happening? And I'm up front smiling, like, all right, let's figure this out, you know? Love it. I love it when music doesn't start on time. I love it when things take longer than they're supposed to. I love it when maybe there's a little conflict on the day of. I love it because, not because I like conflict. I love it because what I tell the couples I marry is, look, here's the deal. All that stuff that doesn't go the way you think it is, all that stuff that breaks in the wrong direction, you're going to look back on and either laugh at or maybe cry over, but you're going to be reminded that in the day, the best win at the end is that you're going to be married no matter what happens. So I smile because I know what's happening next. I smile because I know that, yeah, we played the wrong song, but we're still gonna be married at the end of the day, and that's the win. And then we celebrate, you know? I smile because what seems awful in the moment often becomes immeasurably small compared to the joy and the weight of what we've done together that day. I love those moments because they remind me of the big picture of what we're there for. I think these guys are included because God says, look, these guys are in my line and they tried their best to ruin my family and they couldn't do it. These guys are in my line and they led to me, Jesus Christ, being here. Which really brings us to the larger point. Brings us to kind of the whole reason why we talk about genealogies is, and why, maybe why we don't talk about genealogies. Is I think sometimes we read the scriptures and, and we read 16 verses of names that we understand and don't understand, and we don't understand how that connects to you and me. We don't understand how those names make a difference in how I tell the Christmas story to my kids. We don't understand how those names make an impact on the virgin birth, or on the fact that Jesus is here, or on the idea that there was no room at the end, and that was an evil, evil, mean man, you know? We don't understand the correlation. But I think what it does is it doesn't just tell us where Jesus came from, but reading the genealogies and understanding him informs us as to who Jesus came for in the first place, you know? Because when I read this list and I see the overachievers and I see the overlooked and I see the, the, the outcasts of the group and I see the ones that never wanted to be there in the first place, at some point in my life, I guarantee you, I found myself as one of those people. Yeah, I've done well some days and some weeks and I've led the Christmas card list for the ride now or Christmas card when it came out. Hey, Charlie graduated from Moody or he's a senior pastor now. They never mentioned middle school pastor. That didn't hit the list, you know? I've had some weeks and some months and some years where I was overshadowed by the bigger, taller brothers that I have. I had some weeks and some months and some years where I seemed like I wasn't part of the family and some when I didn't want to be altogether. But I think what it reminds me of is the fact that Jesus steps into the mess of family and says, I came for all those types to work through those types of people. So I think we're fascinated by our family, you know? I think we are, right? I look at things like 23andMe. There's a story on, on uh, there's a TV show on PBS called Finding Your Roots. It's fascinating to watch. This guy sits down with these celebrities and he just, he spends months tracing their heritage and then he sits down and tells them about it and it always ends in tears. Whether they came from a president or from a slave trader, it ends in tears because we, 
intrinsically want to know who our family is because it forms us who we are a little bit. And recently I've learned more about what that looks like, you know? So in the last six months, I remember in my baby shower, um, at, at my wife's baby shower, um, <laughs> I've been stopped by that one before. Uh, it's our kid, my wife's presence. Anyway, so at, at, the, <laughs> at, the, at the baby shower, we played this game where we had all of our direct family members, like my parents and grandparents, we had pictures of them as a baby and then pictures of us as a baby and they had to kind of match the name with the person. And then this last Christmas, my mom gave me a great gift. She, she digitized all of the photos of me as a baby in those old school albums that you never open, you know? And I was looking through it last week and thinking, man, I love my family and I love all the parts about it and I'm interested in who my family is. And I love looking at pictures of my dad as a kid and then holding me as a kid and then me holding my daughter as a kid. And I love the story that tells about who our family is. And what I love about the genealogy of Jesus is he's telling the story of messy people saying, I came for all of you because I've been all those people at different points in my life. The genealogies of Jesus show us not just who he is or who he was, but who he came for. The purpose isn't that you see a perfect family, but that you see a God who works through all types, the overachievers, the overlooked, the outcasts, and the disappointments, and he ultimately accomplishes his purposes. And sometimes we have better things to do where we want to get to where the action happens, and so we rewrite through, and I think we miss the beauty of what God's saying. The medium is the message. He says, I came into a messy family. I didn't try and clean it up first. I stepped into the middle of that because I came to bring order to the chaos. I came to bring peace to the mess. That's what I came to do, and I did it with my family, and I'm here to do it for yours. It's this beautiful picture of what Jesus came to do. And whatever type we find ourselves on the back of our Christmas cards, you know? And so when we read through the genealogies, it gives me immense hope and immense joy and comfort that God's saying you're a part of my family. It's been messy from the beginning, and it's probably messy now, but it can be a part of it. That's what it means when it says God with us. And that's what we celebrate in the Christmas season. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful for your family. <laughs> thankful they didn't clean it up when you told us about it. I'm thankful that you came into a messy family. I'm thankful that we're a part of that family and the mess that we bring to it. You say you want to step into as well. I pray that gives us hope. I pray that causes us to take joy in a God who's bigger than us, whose plans can't be thwarted by times when we even want to thwart your plans. Pray it gives us hope in the fact that we're not overlooked or we're not outcast. Or even if we're doing really well, it's a good thing too. I pray that as we read through and pray over and study the lineage of God, we see a clear-cut picture of a God who came for all kinds of people. And then as we talk about God being with us this Christmas season, we remember it literally means us and all the different people in the back of our Christmas cards too. And I pray that it causes us to love you even more and worship even harder because you're good and you're our family. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.